Mary, so I've gotten you pregnant, okay? <laughs> this is just the thought experiment. I'm, I'm dying. Okay, yes, it's a thought experiment. I hate that, okay. I hate that you're dying because I'm going to need you as a vessel. Um, <laughs> I'm a broken and flawed vessel. I hate to say that. Yes, you. but you can produce a child. Um, I cannot, my, actually. My child. Okay, so if I, if I get you pregnant... <laughs> What with your super sperm? Okay. Yes, because my testosterone is just like on <laughs> fleek. Does anyone say that? Um, no, nobody does. Okay. Go ahead. All right. My no one says that, Brian. Okay. John's mom says that. Okay, so John's mom says my testosterone's on fleek, and she would know. Um, so if I get you pregnant, how? What can I say to you? I mean, because I, I have provided you with half of what you need and so many more things. <laughs> so w- what, are you, what are you talking about? Greetings and welcome to the Fisk Community Show. We are a group of internet randos brought together by a shared appreciation for lively discussion, considerate disagreements, and irreverent humor. Follow us on Twitter at Fifth Community. Find fellow seditionists by using the hashtag Fifthem and follow the Fifthem Club on Clubhouse. And as always, in the words of Camille Foster, be brave, call bullshit. and welcome to this exciting new installment of the Fifth Column Community Podcast. Today, we are talking about the not-at-all-controversial topic of abortion. Um, We have three women and two men uh, on this panel. That means the men will be talking most of the time. Um, They will be explaining... uh, reproduction, um, you know, access to contraception and abortion to the rest of us women, and we are here to learn from them. Um, So uh, how about we all introduce ourselves? Um, I'm Ileana, I'm the host of this show together with everyone else who ever wants to be a host. Um, I'm Brad. Um, i was going to suggest we front load all of the men explain abortion to women content just right up top. Um, I disagree with Ileana's framing of that. Um, however, yeah, I'm Brad. I've been on here a few times, mainly talking about aliens. Uh, now we're talking more substantive things like abortion. So uh, we will not be explaining abortion to the women, but we will be hoping to have a somewhat reasonable conversation about the topic with, with the women who happen to be here. So I'm John. Brad doesn't speak for me. And I do accept Ileana's framing. We will be explaining abortion to all of you women. And I will also in this role, actually let the other one introduce herself. Hi, I'm Victoria, and I'm just here for uh, John and Brad to tell me what I should think about abortion. 
I would just note that you referred to her as the other one. That That's the point, Brad. And I'm Mary, and I'm just here to learn from John and Brad, because being probably twice their age, I'm sure they have a lot to teach me. We're very young. <laughs> we have many things to say. But are they smart things? We'll find out. So the uh, the reason that I convened this conversation um, is because it seems particularly timely, given the fact that the last uh, couple of weeks have seen um, SCOTUS refusing to uh, pronounce to make a pronouncement on the constitutionality of the Texas law and uh, allowing it to proceed. Um, and this week, the DOJ um, suing Texas on uh, constitutional grounds over the, uh, the six week uh, cutoff abortion law. Um, so I thought this was a good time to approach this topic. Um, of course, in many ways, there's never a good time to approach this topic, which means that it's always a good time in fifthdom to talk about it. Um, so we, th you guys who are here come from a bunch of different backgrounds, which I find particularly interesting. So we have somebody who is somewhat familiar with the law. That is John. Um, we have three women who are, you know, the, the ones among us who are, um, you know, the ones that might find themselves in that situation. Um, you know what? I'm actually going to come out and say that I, I have had an abortion. Um, I also have two living children. Um, so I'm, you know, very happy and willing to talk about that. Um, yeah, and there is a wide range of ages as well. Um, and I am actually curious to see what, what people's perspectives are once we get to that point. Um, so my idea for a plan of how to proceed, and please let me know if you have different ideas, um, is that we, and by we, I mean John, would give a quick framing of the current um, legal framework for abortion in the U.S. Um, and then we can talk specifically, if we wish, about the Texas law and what we like or don't like about it, what problems or benefits we foresee. Um, and then, if we're not all tuckered out by the end, um, I'd be curious if we can briefly discuss a moral framework for considering abortion. Um, it's one thing that I think reasonable people can agree to disagree on, and I would be very curious to see what agreements and disagreements we come up with. All right, well, um, this, full disclosure, I'm not an attorney, and I'm not an expert in any way on... Um, on constitutional issues, but I do have a, a pretty decent grasp of 
the issues that were before the court or have been before the court. So I think I'm going to start out really quick just for like people who aren't super um, like for people that don't read like SCOTUS blog or whatever, a quick like background on the, the law as it is the, which permits and protects a woman's right to an abortion um, and kind of like a brief history of it. So bear with me for just a couple of minutes. So, there is a concept, is a legal concept called fundamental rights, uh, uh, outlined by the con- by the Supreme Court, um, and they include things like what are outlined in the Bill of Rights, like speech and gun ownerships, uh, gun ownership. Those sorts of individual rights that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights are among the are among the fundamental rights outlined by, uh, and you have uh, marriage, privacy, contraception interstate travel, procreation, custody of children, and voting, those are all considered fundamental rights, according to the Supreme Court. And when you have a law being challenged uh, that purportedly infringes on one of those fundamental rights, the constitutionality of that that law, um, historically, or in modern history, has been reviewed under what's called strict scrutiny by the Supreme Court. And for a, a law that might uh, violate someone's constitutional rights to hold up in federal court. The government uh, has to show that the law furthers a compelling government interest and that the particular law at issue is narrowly tailored to achieve a specific, the specific compelling government interest. With that said, we have Roe versus Wade, where the plaintiff sued a local district attorney in Texas when uh, Texas law prohibited her from getting an abortion in the late 60s in the um, the district court ruled for the plaintiff and then Texas appealed the ruling and it went directly to Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that the due process clause, the 14th Amendment, provides a, quote, right to privacy uh, that protects a woman's right to an abortion. Um, and this put it in that category that I was explaining before of fundamental rights. Um and any laws that infringe on a right to an abortion were then like were then subject to strict scrutiny review if they were challenged on constitutional grounds. Um, so the court in Roe made the end of the first trimester the threshold for preempting a potential compelling government interest claim. Um, so in effect, states could um, they couldn't ban abortions after Roe for the first trimester. But they might be able to ban abortions after if the bans were in the interest of the health of the mother or fetus. It's long and complex. I'm not going to get into the whole thing because the the role the the law was developed in in other cases. But um, under Roe, a state could ban an abortion after the 28th week, um, since a state can show that it has a substantial state interest in protecting potential life that late into um, gestation. Um, now we're with that as background we come to like what the current standard is and that's an undue burden standard when you're reviewing um uh the constitutionality of certain prohibitions or regulations on on abortions and the undue burden standard is a a law that curtails a woman's fundamental right to an abortion is unconstitutional if it creates an undue burden for a woman seeking an abortion and an undue burden means um having the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion of a fetus that is not yet viable. Um, and that brings us to Planned Parenthood v. Casey, 
which is the the pretty much the law. I mean, there are other important cases that we're not going to go over because this isn't this isn't like a uh, a SCOTUS blog or anything like that podcast. So I'm not going to like hammer everyone in the head with this stuff. But the important one to know is uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, and if anyone listened to the podcast with David French and Sarah Isger, Sarah Isger said basically like, let's throw out Roe, let's like stop talking about it. And she like joked that, you know, she might uh, use it as sort of like a friendly insult to people on Twitter who like keep talking about Roe. Um, and I kind of disagreed with that take a little bit um, because I, I actually think Casey reaffirmed some important parts of Roe, including that a woman still has a fundamental right to an abortion and should be able to obtain an abortion before the fetus is viable, since the state doesn't have a compelling interest in prohibiting an abortion during the first trimester. So it, it, it held on to this uh, important holding from Roe. And also that um, in Casey, the court found that the state can restrict abortions after fetal viability if the state makes exceptions for pregnancies that are dangerous to the mother. And bringing us to the end, um, what happened in Casey was um, the plaintiffs, which were clinics and, and doctors uh, in Pennsylvania, they sought an injunction against the governor um, in Pennsylvania from enacting five, from enacting a new law that included five provisions that really curtailed or could have curtailed uh, the right to an abortion, um, and the quickly the five part the five provisions were uh, a requirement that abortion providers inform women seeking abortions that the abortion could be harmful to her. It required married women to get a signed statement from her husband that put him on notice about the abortion, with some exceptions. It required a uh, a parent or guardian to sign off an abortion for for minors, uh, unless the minor could get like a judge to permit the abortion in the absence of parental consent. Um, it, defined, it defined medical emergencies. I won't get into that. What, what a medical emergency meant in the context of abortions is sort of restricted the definition. And it required increased record keeping uh, for abortion services. And the Casey court threw out that strict scrutiny thing that we talked about, that I talked about a minute ago, um, and instead used the, a different standard of review, that, that undue burden standard. Um, and the court in Casey held that the only provision of that Pennsylvania law that failed the undue burden test was the part that required the woman to notify her husband. Um, and the, the holding in the holding in the Casey case is really complicated because some people there were dissents. There were people that concurred in part, dissented in part and joined um, so there, there are a lot of there's a lot of legal discussion there that is not necessarily a rule, but um, generally Casey just replaced while reaffirming uh, certain holdings from from Roe, and then we can maybe a little bit later get into like sovereign immunity and what happened in Young, etc. But I think I've talked enough, given enough background. John, I had a quick question for you. Uh, uh, one of the things that I, I think I heard Sarah Isker say is that um, Casey replaces Rose trimester framework with yes. uh, the viability framework. So, so basically um, now, like you said, so after Casey, states can only restrict abortion rights after viability um 
in case of uh, in case of like a danger to the mother. Is that right? Yeah. So this is actually really really important. That the the probably I kind of want to I save this for this discussion specifically. Like so under Roe, there was like a um, a hard line on it was either twenty eight or twenty four weeks. Um, but a hard line that said, you know, after this point, a government, a state government could reasonably make an argument about fetal viability. Um, and, you know, but, but then it would be subject to strict scrutiny review. But it created this like really hard line. But in Casey, what happened is what what the effect of Casey is that if a government can show that a fetus could be viable, given like new medical technology, for example, if a fetus could be viable theoretically at 23 weeks, well, then the fetal viability becomes the cutoff. Whereas in Roe, you had like, it's definitely protected in the first trimester. It might, it could, could not be later on down the line, but but definitely, but then there's like this definitive cutoff. And in Casey, it's more subject to like the development of technology uh, in a lot of ways. Like, can you keep a fetus alive after a certain time in the gestation period? Great. Yeah. Um, I wonder if this, so... Does anyone, would you guys like to comment at this point, like how, you know, in your like personal layperson, um, you know, opinion does, and, and given your own, like your own personal morality, how does this seem like, how does viability feel? Um, however, we understand viability, but how does that feel as a standard? after which states may restrict abortion. And Mary, we haven't heard from you. I don't, I don't want you to feel like, uh, you know, and I can't see you. So it's hard, it's hard for me to, to gauge how you're feeling. So yeah, please butt in whenever. Yeah. And you know, I, I will butt in. Well, you know, viability, I believe it, the current standard is 24 weeks of gestation. Um, at which point the fetus has a fairly decent chance of survival outside the womb, although there are also, of course, a lot of issues with uh, uh, health and uh, the, um, gosh, I'm in, I'm in great standing tonight with my finding of words, uh, the development of lungs and, and so forth. Um, preemies, of course, have higher chances of learning disabilities and early uh, serious lung infections, eyesight after being under the oxygen, etc. Anyway, um, I just find it interesting. The one of the tenets of Roe was for the state to prove a compelling benefit to the state in uh, taking away a woman's privacy by uh, forcing her to not be able to get an abortion. The turnaway study shows very clearly that women who are denied abortions because they come in to receive a termination and they are found to have been too many, too far past the cutoff, 76% um, of the women who then have to have an abortion report not being able to cover basic living needs. The majority of them are below federal poverty level they're three times greater 
likely to be unemployed, enrolled in TAMP, SNAP, or WIC. So I don't understand how a state believes that that is going to benefit the state because you are going to put more women and children on welfare. You force women to stay in potentially abusive relationships or be single parents. So the, the, the benefit to women and children is not good when they are not allowed to terminate. Um, and then, and more importantly to me are the differences in socioeconomic and development for children of women who are denied abortion. We know for, you know, there, there, there are studies out there that women who terminate, successfully terminate an unwanted pregnancy and they have children later in life, both the women and the children do better. They have a higher standard of living, higher education, higher uh, financial success, et cetera. So um, I just I just would yeah, really no, I... like somebody to be able to prove to me how the state has a vested interest in, in not allowing women to terminate pregnancies when they want to. I wonder though, and I actually don't know about this. Um, I, I don't know like how much that is like in the letter or the spirit of the law, but I, I wonder if what I'm not making this argument, but I wonder if one of the arguments is that the state does have a compelling interest in protecting life. And I wonder if viability is considered sort of the point at which, you know, this developing, um, I don't want to say person or being because those are loaded, but yeah, this developing fetus is likelier than not to become a life at which point the state's interest in protecting life kicks in. I, I... Uh, when I think about viability, I always think about a famous essay and I'm sure everyone that's taken a philosophy 101 course has read this because I, I think it's probably one of the more famous 20th century essays, but it's called a defense of abortion by uh Judith Jarvis Thompson. I had to look that up. I didn't remember who it was. Um, but it's got this kind of excellent thought experiment, at least to justify this line of viability, um, which I, I think is an interesting one. And, you know, it's a philosophical thought experiment. So, like, forgive the slight silliness of all of this, but um, you wake up one day and you're attached to uh, this unconscious man who turns out to be a famous violinist, right? And Judith Jarvis Thompson very specifically picks this, uh, <laughs> the, the, the person being of great talent, because you always get these kind of arguments that's like, well, what if you aborted Hitler or some, you know, some, something stupid like that. It's kind of trying to, trying to give an end run around that. Um, the, the philosophy student giving exceptions to a um, thought experiment. And so you're, you're attached to this famous violinist who can only, um, who, who can actually only survive if they're attached to you. Scientists have done some sort of, you know, tests and you're the only one with a blood type that can sustain his dying kidneys or whatever the thought experiment states. It's been a long time. I apologize. I'm actively reading the Wikipedia article for it right now because I did my homework. Um, but, um, you know, it's an interesting thought experiment about, okay, well, what moral responsibility do you have at this point? And I, I think most of our moral intuitions would say, okay, if you're hooked up to this famous violinist and, and your life has some sort of significant impact, um, to sustain this man's life, then 
you likely don't have a moral responsibility to him, right? You know, at, at what point does your sustaining of this person, um, you know, if he is not able to sustain life outside of your own? And, and I think most people's moral intuitions kind of come down on the fact that, no, you likely don't have a moral responsibility to that man, um, to the famous violinist. And I don't know where I, I come down on that, but I, I do think that that's where most people's moral intuitions are. And I, I think there's a strong argument for that, which then makes this this question of viability interesting. I mean, then you get into the legal and scientific ramifications of, okay, well, where does viability begin, right? We have to set these arbitrary standards for everyone. Whereas, you know, some, some fetuses might be able to survive outside of the mother's womb you know, at, at much earlier than others, right? So this does become scientifically arbitrary to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I always think that's a that's an interesting thought experiment about viability and seeing where people's moral intuitions lie on that. I, I think that establishing viability that way is quite a good way because I, I think most people kind of fall in line with that. And sorry, Mary, I did not address the state point at all because I got distracted with that. I apologize. No, no, you're, no, it's good. I, um, the viability issue is, I mean, that, that is the the meat of everything uh, for most people, right? When when they think about abortion, it it becomes a very emotional issue because um, to people who are opposed to abortion, the the fetus is a life. The fetus deserves to have every opportunity at a life um the only way and i as a as a mother who has you know given birth to two children that emotional argument's really compelling i knew from the minute i found the minute i knew that i was pregnant with my first child i knew that i personally could never have an abortion i there was nothing that would compel me to abort my child, but I also had struggled with pregnancy. This was a wanted, planned pregnancy. I was very, I've been very privileged to never have been in the position of having an unwanted pregnancy when I was unprepared to be a parent. And, and that is a position of privilege to speak from because not everybody has, has that opportunity or option. Um, at the same time, I look at the greater harm issue. I try to have to step back and look at it logically. What is the greater harm um, in, do we look at a, a mother, a person, whether they're, it's a teenage girl or a young woman or, you know, a 30 year old woman, we look at her contribution to the world. We look at her value as a person, what she has to offer. Is it right to ask that that person who's alive, contributing to society, trying to do their best, is, is it right to ask them to sacrifice what they've done, what they want to do, what their future plans are for uh, a being that right now doesn't have, we don't know who that person's going to be. We don't know what their contribution could be. Um, and I, I just, I have to look at it from the point of view of the woman who is burdened or not with carrying that fetus to term. 
to me that the greater good is what is better for women and society overall. And to me, that is making abortion safe, legal, and available. Um, just a question for everyone. Is it fair to assume that we are all colloquially pro-choice? Um, if you had to put yourself in one of those I'm, two. I'm, I'm super conflicted about it. On the one, I, I separate sort of my moral intuitions from what I believe is correct legally. Um, I, it's easy for me to say, it's easy for me to say like, you know, the, if I would never get one, right? Like I don't have, a that's easy. exactly like uh, the idea of it, the idea of it. And it just like instinctually, the idea of it is just something doesn't feel right about it. Um, but I'm not pro, I'm not anti-abortion by any means. I, I think, for example, the Texas law is absurd. It's terrible. It's, 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 it's horrible. Um, um, and, and if I were a dictator and were writing the laws, I would not prohibit abortions, you know, before the first try before the end of the first trimester. That just sounds, that sounds crazy. So to answer your question, I'm pro-choice, but I'm not like an activist about it in any way yeah. because I'm conflicted morally. Yeah, but but if you were not, if you were dictator, you would not prohibit them full stop. Absolutely not. No. Okay. No. Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I, have, I have similarly conflicting moral opinions on this. You know, I, I would say like number one, I don't think the state ought have any involvement in it. So like politically I am I'm pro-choice. Um, you know, and, and pretty strongly so until you start getting into the kind of viability issues and things like that. Um, you know, I I mean morally I I don't like the trend from recent years that kind of presents this as a morally uncomplicated choice. I'm not sure what the morality is of it. Um but at the same time, you know, I like had a very close friend a few years ago that um, I, I I took to get one, and you know, I it what she had to go through was disgusting. It was in the south, you know, there were people shouting and protesting outside, and you know, I covered her up with a jacket, and there were there were these people with um you know little kids there. And like these awful signs that were clearly like fake signs, like fake abortions, just meant to look as is like disgusting and repulsive as possible. I, I there's very little doubt in my mind that they were fucking made up. Um, and you know, I, I just thought I'm like, you know, no matter how morally complicated this decision is, or even if it's wrong, which I don't necessarily think it is, I just, I, I just. Yeah, I, I, it's it's a difficult area. It's an incredibly difficult area. I've I've never been put in that situation. And I I don't know what decision that I would make because I, I've just never been put in it, right? But um, you know, when you look at the moral harm of what <laughs> these people were doing to their children outside of this abortion clinic, I think is no doubt greater in my mind. I I, I found that particularly morally repulsive to be taking your children to a political protest. And I, I 
feel very strongly that if what my friend was doing was morally wrong, what they were doing was far, far, far more morally wrong. Um, you know, and I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic with Mary's point as well, that like, what kind of great moral harm might we be doing bringing children in? You know, if people have this like crazy misconception about abortion, that it's like, frankly, like, I think the the right's conception of abortion is that it's like callous floozies that are sleeping around and are using it as a um as a method of birth control. And it's like, no, no one no one's doing that. <laughs> like this is, you know, many women that get abortion already have children. They're put in economic circumstances where they can't afford it. Like I yeah, it's Sorry, I know I'm going on and on <laughs> a little bit. It's it's tough to work through these these kind of like competing. Uh, you know, I think that it might well be far more morally wrong to put a child in a circumstance where they might have quite a horrible life as well, right? Um, and I'm I'm not comfortable making that moral judgment, and the state sure as fuck shouldn't be. <laughs> how I feel about it. Yeah. I would just say generically, like abortion has always been kind of the most interesting political moral issue for me. Um, and yes, I'm a man set that shit aside, but, um, like, because it, it seems like there, there's just not any right answer and or information that could come forward that would clarify, um, or kind of make the distinction between the two sides any clearer. It's it's a very kind of fundamental thing. Um, and a question I want to bring up later is that, um, is whether, like, what information could come forward as, as we are all in some kind of g general pro-choice group, what exactly would information look like that would make us change our minds um i'm not asking that now but um yeah so I, I just think it's intrinsically interesting because no one to me at least like including myself um has the right answer um you know there's, there's too many determinations on when life is life quote unquote um you know and when you are quote unquote I'm trying to take both sides of this here when I'm using this language, uh, like killing a life. Um, it's all just, it's all just very interesting to me and maybe the most interesting, as I said, like political and or moral issues. So, um, Ileana, as the, as far as I know, as, as, since you volunteered this up, since you've had an abortion, um, what are your thoughts on this? And then I may have some follow-up questions for you. I mean, my, my thoughts, first of all, are that it's complicated. It's, it's complicated. And there is no one answer, and there may never be one right answer. Um, when I had... Uh, my abortion, I had already had one child. 
So my daughter was two and a half, I think my oldest. Um, and I had struggled to get pregnant with her. Um, like I, I had required medical intervention to get pregnant. Um, you know, that had been a very wanted pregnancy. I felt a connection to it as soon as I knew I was pregnant. And because I was, you know, watching my cycles like a hawk, I knew very early. Um, and, you know, because I had had trouble getting pregnant with her, you know, I, I was like, well, I'm going to have trouble getting pregnant again. So, you know, I wasn't careful. And, um, Lo and behold, two and a half years later, I was pregnant again. This was particularly bitter. I was going to say bittersweet, but no, it was mostly bitter because um, I had really horrible postpartum depression, um, which came on top of my, you know, baseline depression that I've had my entire adult life. I had been able to manage it fairly well before having kids, but one of the things that kids do is that they absolutely challenge and stretch all of your coping mechanisms. And, you know, that's all well and good evolutionarily. That's what they're meant to do. Their, their you know, cuteness and preciousness is there to make you want to divert your own resources away from yourself and towards them. Um, you know, for me, that was very hard. So I struggled with mental health. The week before I realized that I was pregnant for the second time, I had decided I wasn't going to have another child. And I remember, you know, having made that decision and it feeling like this huge relief, like, Okay, I've, I've done this one thing. It's been really difficult. It's been very taxing on my body, on my mind. But, you know, I, I don't have to have another one. So I'm not going to. Um, and then I realized I was pregnant. Um, and having been pregnant once before and very much having wanted to, what I was struck by was how entirely differently I felt about this unwanted pregnancy. Um, I was completely not expecting that. So like my physical symptoms were the same. That's how I knew that something was going on and I knew to test. This was also very early. Um, but my connection to the pregnancy was... 180 degree polar opposite. Um, I didn't feel an emotional connection. Um, I didn't relate to it as my future child. I had no feelings of, you know, nurturing. I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like this was something special and precious. And I was actually very struck by this. I, I wasn't expecting it at all. Um, and so it, it took me like a couple of days to, to decide, um, to get an abortion. Um, I, yeah, I, I chose, uh, I chose to go in rather than just taking the meds 
because I, I actually didn't want to be, um, I think I didn't want to be alone when it happened. Like I didn't want to just, you know, sort of bleed it out. Sorry for being so graphic in my own house. Um, and I, and I wanted, you know, like I wanted to be predictable. I wanted to go in, have it be done and then walk out and go on with my life. Um, yeah. And the other thing that, that struck me is at the moment when, um, when the abortion took place, this was a vacuum aspiration. I, Sorry, though this is graphic, but you know, you all, I don't know if you guys asked, but you know, you're here, so you'll, you'll hear it. Um, so like at the moment that I felt my uterus contracting because it had been emptied out, I felt, um, relief and sorrow in equal amounts and at the same time, um, which I also wasn't expecting. And I feel those same emotions in the same proportions now. <laughs> um, I, you know, th that was the right choice. I, you know, I don't feel guilty about it. I don't regret it. It was the saddest thing that I have personally either done or caused to have done to me. And the most relieving thing that I had done and caused and or caused to have done to me. Um, so first of all, uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, I have to ask just, just in the context of this conversation, like if, if I were a pro life person, um, what I would be, which I'm not, but what I would be hearing is that a lot imagination is doing a lot of work there. Um, so the fact that you didn't want to get pregnant or it sounded like very early you decided that this, and again, the language here is very tricky because I don't want to use baby fiat, just entity for just to make things neutral. Um, imagine a pro-life person would have been noticing that and thinking that your feeling towards this, what they would say is other life, does not determine whether it is another life. Um, of course, you know, I, you and I have talked about this and I agree, I, I agree with, with your view of it. But there's something like about just imagination and one's own view um, of the pregnancy that is kind of hard to ignore and I think is not talked about very often. So is there is there more to say about um, I mean if you if you if 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 the entity, again, people won't be able to see that I'm using air quotes, but if the entity that was in your body at that moment, if, if you wanted to have another child at that moment, I imagine the words that you would be using to describe 
um, what was growing inside of you would have been very different. Um, kind of the emotional significance of that would be very different. Um, there's trivial parts of it, like, you know, possible names would come up. Um, is, is that, is there a way to, that you like clearly delineate between uh, one of your children that you have now and this entity? Like, is it, was it ever yeah. going to be a child to you or, or is it, this is a very sloppy question, but again, I feel like this part of the conversation is not discussed enough. Um, no, I um, agree. And, and again, it's, it's just complicated. So this was like in the middle of my fifth week of pregnancy, which, you know, is very early. It is too early to detect a heartbeat via ultrasound. Um, if you are looking at, um, you know, a pregnancy on ultrasound, all at that point, all you see is a gestational sac. It looks like a bead, like in your uterus, right? Um, sure, it is a potential life. It's really no, or maybe it's like very slightly more potentially a life than the egg that pops out of your, you know, uh, ovary and tumbles down your fallopian tube every month. Like, it's not in any recognizable way. And again, having been pregnant once before and tracked, like, development very closely, been very, you know, involved with it. You know, the other two times when I was pregnant at this point... I didn't feel like there was like a being in there. Um, the times that I wanted to be pregnant and I welcomed a pregnancy, you know, yes, my imagination was imbuing that clump of cells with a lot. It was still just a clump of cells. Um, and, you know, like speaking of like viability or like at what point does it feel like there's a being there um personally for me both times that that i was pregnant with my two children um that point came at the the time that i could hear their heartbeats uh with uh like a doppler device i have like you know a home doppler like you stick it on your belly and it picks up the heartbeat and that was around 10 weeks both times and once I did that and I was able to hear the heartbeat, that was like, okay, there's somebody in there. Um, until then, I hadn't thought, oh, yeah, there's somebody in there. This is, you know, just me, my own experience. Yeah, I, I, I echo that, too. It's that when you have that appointment where you, where you first hear the heartbeat, that is it's a truly moving experience. If, if you're, um, if you've ever been in the room when it's happened or you've been the person who's carrying that little clump of cells trying to grow into a person, you know, it's interesting to me because I think that we, everybody places differing levels of value on human life, depending on 
who that life is, where that life lives, um, whether that life is a burden to others, what harm that life may have done to others, or what perceived potential harm that life may do. Um, I always, I feel like there's a, a great deal of hypocrisy, particularly from the right, um, and, and from some of the same people who will stand at a clinic and, and tell women that they are murdering their babies. And they're the same people who are saying we, we need to turn the deserts of Iraq into a giant sheet of glass because Muslims are so dangerous. Um, and, and I think that that concept of value is kind of important to explore. Um, and everybody is going to probably land in different places when, when we think about it. Um, I was really privileged recently to have a conversation with my 16 year old son. Um, he has, he's been, uh, our neighbor kid regularly entertains a group of youth from the local Mormon church who, you know, walk the neighborhood. <laughs> and, um, so, so my kid's been, been hanging out with him too. And, uh, he, we got in the car one day to, to go somewhere and he said, uh, my sister's mad at me. And I said, Oh, that's not unusual. <laughs> why, why is she mad at you this time? He said, well, because I told her that I was against abortions. I said, okay, that's interesting. I think that's very interesting. And it's, it's, to me, it's fascinating as my children grow and become young adults, how they perceive the world is their own way of perceiving the world. And I want to nurture their ability to think critically about things. And so I said, okay, tell me, tell me more about that. And he said, well, I just, I just think it's wrong. Okay. Um, and I had the opportunity to sort of tell him what I thought and, and tr to do so in a very thoughtful way. So as to say, look, you, you have the right to form your own opinion. I also want you to be able to consider other ideas while you have that opinion. So, so that you can, learn everything that you can and be able to defend yourself and also to be able to consider other people's point of view. And so we talked about it at great length and I, and I thought it was a really good conversation um, to at least open his eyes to, to what some of the um, important ideas he should consider would be, which, which are, you know, yeah, we don't, we don't like to take a life. Um, and at what point does a fetus become a life? Is it when the heart beats? Is it when the brain is active? When it becomes a sentient being? Um, and then what happens if we don't let anybody ever have an abortion? What happens to women in different circumstances? We talked about all of that. And it was it was a super interesting conversation. Um, I don't know that I changed his mind, but I think I gave him some other things to consider. That's great. Yeah, I'm tempted. I'm tempted. I'm tempted to go to like thought experiments here, um, just because those kind of help me think about this issue. And I'm seeing a couple of nods. John is looking at me like I'm a psychopath, but that's normal. Victoria is very excited, of course, because you're talking about yeah, thought experiments. Yeah, Victoria. Yeah, Victoria lives in thought experiments. Uh, well, some weird edge cases. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is why I love you, weirdos. Yeah, and, yeah, and we and we all love. Likewise, you Mary. Okay, yeah. so okay, so on on the topic of abortion, it's often framed 
totally understandably is a women's rights issue. Um, so my question, and I also can't help but notice that kind of the yardstick, like legally there's some sort of yardstick that keeps moving, whether it's fetal viability, you know, there, there has to be something that the law points to as, okay, after this point, X happens and therefore Y. Um, so in just a purely thought experiment way, imagine that we have, you know, in the future, um, we have a technology that is in effect an artificial womb. Um, any woman at who is aware that she is pregnant at any stage of the pregnancy who might want an abortion can simply non-invasively and uh, I mean, I stress non-invasively transport again, I'm using the word the entity um, just to make it as uh, like <laughs> to provide no weight to baby or fetus or whatever, transport the entity into this artificial womb. Okay. So if, if the woman is two weeks pregnant or in the second trimester or whatever, uh, not invasively, this entity can be moved into outside of the woman. Okay. And let's also assume that we have a sufficient social safety net who will can sufficiently adopt all of these children. They can be cared for. They will live the life, the lives that the kind of um, uh, pro-life, like fever dream version of reality would imagine. Um, at that point, is that a women's rights issue? Like if, if a one week old fertilized egg can non-invasively be removed from the woman and the woman can choose to never interact with it again or whatever they would like, does the woman in this thought experiment have the right to terminate that? Um, is that a women's right? How, how far into how far into gestation again? From the point of conception to the religious out there, I'm just saying that, like, from day dot, we, this technology can remove non-invasively this entity that is growing for however long it will grow. The mother and father. Um, will not know who this individual will turn out to be, but there is a sufficient social safety net to support them to become their fullest, most like fully realized individual. Does the mother have the right to say no terminate that entity? when the option, when the alternative is we can terminate it from like from your body, but it will live and you have no obligations to it. Um, 
the social safety net is such that it will be supported and the number of parents who will want this child is more than enough that it will be cared for. Um, at that point, again, I, I have to stress, this is purely a, a thought experiment, but I'm just pressing on like the kind of boundaries of this being a women's rights issue while obviously not, I understand why it is, and I agree with why it is. But since since the yardstick tends to rely on science and like scientific understanding of what the fetus, whether you know the, like the fetal heartbeat is like the most like relevant case right now, um, if like does a woman have a right to assert that a at, at one week? If such a society existed, does the woman have the right to assert that that should be terminated? I hope that was coherent. No, it's yeah. very coherent. Ownership. Who owns it? I mean, uh, that fertilized egg is as yet still a product of the body of the woman who created the egg. Um. So I think I have a right to own my own tissue. Strong agree. It's still a, it's still a women's rights issue, in my opinion. I think it's a human rights issue. Um, I mean, it, or a parent's rights issue, if you will. If we if we believe that parents have a right to raise their children in the religion of their choice and homeschool them, send them to public school, send them to the private religious school that they want to. Um, oversee their entire upbringing and their education, we would contend that parents have a right to own their, technically, be in charge of their children until their children are adults. And that egg belongs to, it came out of the body of the woman who produced the egg. But, but if Therefore, the, she owns it. If the choice is terminating it or allowing it to survive in the context of a social safety net and parents who will accept it, you're, you're saying uh, you have an overriding right to terminate it. Yes. Okay. So, and, and, uh, or to choose to, to let it be grown in an artificial womb. Um, yes. That, I think that that should be the choice of, of the woman that the egg comes out of. Yeah, I would strongly disagree. Well, I, I, I want to separate a moral and a legal question here, because I think morally at that point, if you know that the, the entity will be cared for, we're using entity, we've developed a new legal uh, term. Uh, Brad has developed a new legal term. No, it's just like <laughs> the least freighted word. Yeah, no, I know. It feels like we're talking about an alien. I'm messing with you, Brad. I, I the thing—it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I I think like well, I mean, I I think then morally, as a woman, you must let the fertilized thing be transferred to the artificial womb. I I think legally this is more complicated but I, I think the moral question on that is pretty clear in my mind that that you you have a moral imperative to do so um that some potential for life that you know will 
be a good life that you must do so. Um, I mean, legally, I, I agree. Like, you know, do you own your own tissue? But then wouldn't whoever provided the sperm for the fertilization have equal claim over that fertilized thing if it's going to be transferred to an outside host? Which is which is why I like I specifically was like, no, it's a women's rights issue still, in my view, because no. I think it is because. You're wrong. <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I'm just thinking it's a moral assessment that's informed by the legal stuff. Like I, if we were to call it just a human's right, a human rights issue, well then this, this entity that was growing in you for a, a, a day, I would have an equal stake in it. And I just don't think that I do because I, I am never, I am not, and will never be capable of carrying a entity to term. So, but no, but, no, no. but in this case, in this case, in this case, you would, you would not have to. I wouldn't have to, but the thing is, is like, it's, it's, it's for me, it's still the theoretical in theory. If one were to carry, if a human being and not a vessel were to carry this entity to term, it would be a human being with a uterus. I don't have that ability in theory or in practice. Consequently, I would still call it a women's rights issue. And so then I would, because Brad, you asked that question, like, is it still a women's issue? And I would say yes, but then I'd qualify it. And I'd, I think I think I might have similar moral moral issues with it that Victoria expressed, okay. but I... I was I was trying to get to, I was trying to get to the kind of most extreme version of the pro life argument with this hypothetical, which is that if you know, presuming a certain amount of technology and a certain social safety net and a variety of social conditions that could support this, um, it, it does bec- to me become closer to, and I would not use these words, so it, it becomes closer to quote-unquote murder of a living entity to decide that this four-day-old entity um, cannot be, cannot live a life despite the technology and the social safety net and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it to the decision to terminate it strikes me as closer to killing it than is a situation that we currently find ourselves in. So it, maybe women's rights issue was, was the wrong framing. I mean, I, I think that's, will be sensical to, to people who hear it. Um, John, I take your point that if it's one day, afterwards uh, to the extent to which it, which it's a women's rights issue is is debatable but i'm just talking about on the larger point like the abortion discussion is kind of parasitic on our current scientific understanding of a variety of things um, can i can i reformulate your hypothetical for just a second of course what if you could turn what if you had the ability to make and I'm not, this is literally, we're talking about this in a vacuum. I'm not comparing humans to any other animal. I'm just, this is for the purpose of a thought experiment. But and yet. let's say, 
let's say that you could turn a cat, you have some ability, listen, hear me out, you have an, we have some ability to turn a cat into a human being through, or have the mental capacity of a human being. Let me finish. You can cut this, Brad, if you don't like it, okay? But I like it, and we're going with it. We're, go we're going with it. So you can turn... <laughs> You can turn this, Brad, for those who can't see, which is all of you, is wigging out right now at this crazy hypothetical no, about I'm, cats becoming humans. Uh, John is, if you could turn a cat, if you could give a cat the ability to think like a human being. <laughs> this is going to be the cold open. Yeah. Just getting better and better. Okay, so, you, so I'm thinking like I'm, th I'm a cat. Take, take this, make, make please. It, make take it a critter seriously. of of more emotional value to me. Make it a horse. Uh, all right, a no, horse. No, Let's John. John, good. make it. Make Perfect. it. No, no, no. Hold on. Make it uh, baby veal. <laughs> no. A baby cow. Oh my. No. Oh <laughs> my If you could take a horse, and we have the technology to give to make a horse like capable of metacognition and like have the same mental capacity of like a human being with an IQ of 100 uh would it be murder if you started this horse off on this process towards human thinking if you were to would it be murder would it be like murdering a human being if you were to kill this horse that's in progress to achieving human consciousness and you knew it and you knew yeah yes I would I would submit that would probably be how I mean on some level I don't know what the fuck we're talking about but on another um, you asked this question I, I just I just don't think I I don't think I I don't think that you it's so easy to say that this is a human being uh, um or or that it's murder with a clump of cells that are a day or two old, that it would be murder to sure. Like I mean, this may be—I hate to always reference Sam Harris, but like, if I mean, I, I think it is true that much, at least part of the abortion discussion. And I love that this has now become me and John talking to each other. <laughs> so all of the all of the bras as you predicted uh, no, if, as you predicted if only i could mute you um <laughs> uh, no but i mean i think I, I i hate to always reference sam harris but like in the same way that science does have some like role to play in the abortion discussion necessarily um like if you in a similar kind of thought experiment like if you suppose a sufficient amount of genetic engineering, I think uh, this is a quote from Sam Harris, so do not hold me to it. But like, the, if you scratch your nose, like with a sufficient amount of genetic engineering technology, that is again, quoting Sam Harris. So send your problems his way. That is like a Holocaust of potential lives. Um, so, I mean, that, that is a, f I suppose, a fair point on, on, this, on this issue. I don't know. I, I just think, like, there has to be, if we're going to continue to use science to define, like, viability, then science is going to, like, intrude on what is viable. 
Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, I I don't know anyone. I, well, <laughs> I shouldn't say anyone. I won't name names, but uh, on the kind of on the kind of nine month end. Uh, there's kind of no one who who there are some people and they're all animals, but there are some people who who basically feel until like the baby is coming out that abortion is it, like abortion is viewed the same way. It's okay, like, I have so I have an ethnic joke that adequately addresses this, and oh, great. <laughs> which I. A, which a joke by, is entirely appropriate at this point. Yes, which by God I will share on this podcast. And then I also have a real life example that comes perilously close to what we've been talking about, uh, which which I can describe briefly. So the joke is, um, you know how people have like different views about when life begins, right? So for Catholics, life begins at conception. For, you know, regular secular people, life begins at birth. For Jews, life begins upon graduation from medical school. Um, <laughs> so, so you're not even laugh. alive. I, 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 I'm not actually. Anyway, so here's the trippy part. Here is a very real life example that has a legal ruling attached to it. So you all know Sofia Vergara. She's like the hot actress from Modern Family. So she has been uh, like for, I don't know, a number of years, been in an ongoing custody battle over the frozen embryos that she and her ex-husband uh, had created as they were going uh, through in vitro fertilization. So these are frozen embryos, right? They have never been inside anyone's womb. A doctor took her eggs, his sperm, dumps the sperm on top of the egg. Some embryos come out. They look at them under the microscope. The ones that look best get saved and put on ice. Is and that, that is how this goes. Is the technical term dumps the sperm on the egg? I believe so. Okay. I, I've spent a lot of time on fertility forums. I believe that is the term of art. You just like, just dump it on. Yeah, yeah okay. Science. <laughs> Science. Anyway. So, um, so anyway, Sofia Vergara, her husband got divorced. He wanted to be able to use those embryos. Presumably, since they're divorced, he had sourced a suitable gestational carrier a lot kind of like your, you know, external womb and social safety net scenario, right? This is a guy who is probably wealthy. Hold on, you can object later. Um, you know, they have, they, they have a person who is willing to serve as surrogate. Um, he wanted to be able to use the embryos. She said no. After many years of legal battles, the court ruled in her favor. And the court basically said, this is a two yeses, one no scenario. You cannot use those frozen embryos unless both partners agree. Two yes. There we go. Sorry, two yeses, one no. Who who are the three it, parties? It takes, no, no, it's, you, you need two yeses for it to go forward. And one no is sufficient for it not to go forward. Okay, but, but no, I'm sorry, but I mean... I'm dumb. Who are the three people? 
they're not, they're not, they're, there's only two people. So, like, it's basically a situation where you need affirmative consent of both parties. If one party opposes, the other party can't do it. Okay, I ask, I ask again, who are the three people? There are no three people, you are... You said two yeses and one no. You need, it's, it's two yeses versus one no. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so... Thank who, you. Who would the two yeses to the one no be? No, both two parents. <laughs> both parents have to say yes. Two. There Can have to be two yeses. If okay. there is one no, we're not cutting. It doesn't this. go forward. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, don't cut it. Absolutely not. Okay. No, I want everybody to understand how dense you are. <laughs> Neutron star dense. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do. You and you talk about the artificial womb as a vi if it was actually a viable option. I I have a gut reaction to it, but that is really as an both a mother and an adoptee. Um, I it, it's interesting to me that um, when when women aren't uh, allowed in their state to terminate a pregnancy, do you realize that the majority of them like 99% of them do not reach out for adoption as an alternative. Well, again, this was, a, yeah. it was purely, this was purely a thought experiment. Well, sure. It's a thought experiment, but then whenever you have a thought experiment, the, the tendency of the people reacting to the thought experiment is to apply their real life experiences to it. Um, and, and mine as an adoptee, I, I sort of, it's repulsive to me, um, just simply because of my lived experience and the anecdotal lived experience of, of many people that I'm well connected to in the realm of adoptee rights. Um, I can tell you horror stories of adoptive families. I can tell you lifelong disconnectedness of adult adoptees who had perfectly acceptable parents growing up and they still become kind of non-functional adults who don't know where they came from and don't know why and, and can't accept it. There's, I don't think that you can divorce human psychology from the act of human reproduction. And I'm, um, we are, while we are thinking higher level intelligent beings, some of us anyway, um, we are, we are also um, result of our genetics, um, the, the manners in which we are meant to reproduce and thrive and 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 our internal psycho psychological mechanisms as well and it's it's not an i don't think it's an accident that a, a baby comes out of the womb being able to recognize its mother immediately it it knows who its mother is because it's heard its mother's voice um and there, there are some studies that show that there is some psychological damage when you, um, when a baby is born and mother is no longer part of the picture. 
So, Mary, it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, oftentimes on the quote-unquote pro-life side, adoption is presented as an equivalent uh, option, uh, you know, and like in the better option, uh, the superior option to abortion. Like, oh, you don't want this child that no problem, you know, they'll be adopted and they'll they'll do great. And it sounds like what you're saying is that's just not the case. Not always. I, I think that there are a, a large number of adoptees who do terrifically well. Um, there are a large number of adoptees who struggle with a lot of uh, emotional trauma. A lot of them come through it just fine. They They manage to work it out. And there are a lot of adoptees out there who are perpetually wounded adults. Um, there are adoptive families who aren't that great. There are, of course, there are birth families of birth of origin that aren't that great either. Um, but I, I can tell you plenty of horror stories of people who were adopted and were abused by one or both of their adoptive parents. There's no guarantee just because a fetus comes to full term Nobody can guarantee that that person is going to have a useful, happy, productive life. We just cannot possibly guarantee that to anyone. So. Um, tracking with the kind of like mansplaining of this all, um, we've been going for like 90 minutes. Um, <clears throat> one question I did want to ask everyone that I alluded to earlier, uh, since we all are in generically would identify with some version of pro-choice. Um, abortion is also kind of a funny issue for me because I don't, I don't know what it would look like for information to come forward that would change my, again, generic view of being pro-choice, I I can't imagine like a fact or an argument that would leave me on the other end of it being like, oh, oh yeah, now I'm pro-life in the generic terms. I think abortion is evil or is killing um, people, um, which is not a phrase I would I would ever use now. Um, so I would just throw this to everyone here. Do you, this is a, this is, I mean, we are, this is a group of people that is fifth column adjacent and kind of <laughs> tends to lean into nuance and argumentation. Um, so I'm curious if anyone has an argument or is aware of a kind of argument or a kind of fact that could come forward that would change your kind of like bedrock view of this issue. Is there anything? I mean, I, I will say just to open it, I will say generically, I've, I've always been pro-choice. Um, I have been, I find most of the like general political um, conversation about this issue to not be helpful in changing at least my mind. Um, however, if I, if I had to like pay attention to it, I've become more pro-life like as I've grown older, which is not to say I've become unmoored from my like pro-choice kind of position. I'm just more sensitive to the best versions 
of the pro-life arguments. So like I've, and so thing, I, I think about things on this topic that I wouldn't have previously because the best version of the kind of pro-life argument has, has made me think more. Um, but none of it has implicated my kind of bedrock view of this issue. Um, so I would throw it to everyone and then I'll stop talking. Can you, can you imagine a piece of information or an argument that would change you to, to the extent you say now you are pro-choice would lead to you saying you are pro-life and like kind of flipping your moral view of abortion at large, like I'll grant that you may still have, you know, edge cases that are still relevant to you. But, um, I I think you see what I'm saying. Like, are are you, are you open to reasoning on this point? I think the thing that comes to mind and the thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is if you were to show me like really compelling evidence that I don't know, by the fourth week, the embryo can feel pain. Um, and like, conceive of that pain, um, then I'd be open to changing my point of view. But I just like scientifically, I don't see that ever happening. Like I, I imagine that you can only feel pain once you're, you know, you have sufficient neuronal connections and like some sort and enough of a brain to have consciousness um, or something that resembles consciousness. And I just don't think that's possible, like four weeks, for example. But I guess if you were to give me that sort of evidence that it can feel something and the thing that's being done to it is um, painful, then then I would be opening to amending my current position, which is that we should not interfere. The state shouldn't interfere with this in any manner whatsoever, especially during the first trimester. I think might be slightly weird. Um, but I think, you know, we don't really understand what cognition is and people have different terms for this, right? I mean, I think I think probably the best way to conceptualize of this is a soul. Um, and I, I don't think that the argument that I'm about to make is incompatible with like a really radical form of materialism either. That like, you know, we are just cells and neurons firing or whatever but you know whatever causes like life and metacognition or divinity or the soul or what I mean whatever the fuck you want to call it like if we could find what that is and it was measurable in some way at the point of conception then I think that would put it in the territory for me. This is all very abstract and weird, but I think that would put it in the territory for me as like not, not, you know, that would put me in the pro-life camp. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm with you too on that. That's the thing. Like that's, I would need a very material evaluation of the existence of a soul Right. Like I would I would need evidence. I would need like material evidence that a soul exists. Um, If you were to show me evidence, I'm like asking 
from a materialist perspective for something so spiritual, but like I would need evidence that a soul exists. You show me that you show me the evidence that a soul exists and that I am in some way interfering with the existence of that soul by terminating a pregnancy, then I'd be open to being pro-life. But then, but then I think about it and I'm like, I'm like, but are you terminating it? If, would a soul be dependent on the existence of those cells? Well, I think even if you have like a very, very materialist conception, that's like, there is some like life force. <laughs> this all sounds so stupid. I clearly don't know anything about <laughs> the, life like, force. the life force. Yeah, the, the... Use the life force, Victoria. <laughs> Use the life force. John, is the Pope, does the Pope not sufficient? <laughs> Is the Pope? Yeah. I'm not a practicing Catholic, Brad. Well, I know. That's how you work. So he's insufficient. He's he's he may be necessary, but he's not sufficient. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You're also not a practicing Muslim. Is he necessary? This is correct. He might not be necessary either. That's fair. Actually, I have. I have to interject one small thing. Um, and Mary, this is not to erase you because you're coming next. But I did see. Stop the Mary erasure. Brad. I, there will never be Mary erasure. But I did you see. You should one, try as hard as you want. I will not be erased. It's impossible. <laughs> but I did see one suggestion of an objection to the Texas law from um, an Islamic group, which was claiming that uh, on a religious liberty grounds, that based on like the Isla like the Isla which I won't get into, like the Islamic view of like there's a concept of ensoulment. Um, under Islam, that um, the six-week uh, limit was was before ensoulment would take place in an Islamic context. I don't know if um, you, the face you're giving me suggests that you haven't seen this, but is it possible there could be a religious? I mean, there, of course, there's been like the Satanists who have objected about this, but um, is it possible for there to be? A generically for there to be a religious exemption um, or a religious religious opposition to how this law is worded um, from a quote unquote legitimate religious group that might have implications for its enactment um, just legally, like in a vacuum. Not to my knowledge. Okay, let's go back to Mary. <laughs> Where are we going to be? I I think that the perhaps if there was anything that could change my stance, it would be evidence of consciousness, of, of self awareness. Um, but even then, you know, uh, John, you gave the threshold of can a, can a, can a fetus feel pain? We put dogs and cats to sleep every day. We eat cows. We eat lambs and baby cows we they go to a slaughterhouse going to their death there is surely is at least a moment of pain if if not more um, and sometimes conditions are tragic um, I tell you that when I had to put my dogs to sleep when I had to put my horse down um, they knew what was happening right and so I don't know that that's a sufficient uh, even that would be a sufficient argument for me because I, I you would Perhaps the only thing that could sway me is that the greater good was served by um, 
making a pregnancy go to uh, birth because to in my experience and from all studies that are objective and, and scientifically based, when we allow women the option, option to terminate an unwanted pregnancy, everybody does better. Mothers do better, children do better, and therefore society does better. Um, so give me a greater good argument that, it, that supersedes that and I could get on board. Yeah, Mary, I, um, I, I agree with you on, on both counts, really. Um, I think for me, the point at which I would be willing to consider, um, you know, restricting abortion is if, you know, if I could be persuaded that fetuses in utero have self-awareness, um, as in they, they, they consider themselves as, you know, individuals and they have a particular kind of attachment to their own existence that they do not wish to give up. Um, that might cause me to change my mind. Um, and yeah, and just real quick, when I, I was doing some research for this pod, I was looking at um, outcomes of legislation, you know, uh, uh, permitting access to abortion. And I was actually super shocked and surprised. And, you know, and I'm a died in the world libertarian, but I was still surprised by the, the numerous positive effects that abortion access has on society as a whole. Um, this is like, this is definitely a utilitarian argument, but um, like you were saying, it seems like absolutely everyone does better when women have access to abortion. And this was also super surprising to me, access to contraception doesn't come even close to having the same type of positive effects that access to abortion does. Um, and I, I'm happy to put some of those studies in, in the notes. I was not expecting that. Um, it was interesting for me to find out. Yeah, that's, that is terrifically interesting. I'd like to, I'd like to see those links. Thank you. Yep. Um, are we generically in agreement that we're towards the end zone here? We're getting there. Okay. I would, I'm not sure I've had sufficient amount of wine to consider it done, but okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you, keep, you keep drinking and I'll just presume that we're towards the end zone. Um, yeah. I just want to take a moment to shit on the hosts of the fifth column podcast <laughs> for um, when this topic came you up. Mean, you mean Garrett, right? Garrett Sassy, that's that's who you're talking no, about. No, he does. He's not. He's <laughs> he, he's not actually on the podcast. Surprisingly, uh, specifically. You mean in the fellas? Are you going to shit on the fellas? Yes, I'm going to name names. Uh, actually, <laughs> okay, Michael Moynihan in particular. Um, I, I don't know. I just feel like whenever this topic comes up, uh, Moynihan first, and then the rest in like <laughs> to lesser degree. They dodge talking about this topic. Um, 
to Moynihan's credit, he'll talk about more now than he would like a year ago. But I, this is a sort of serious point. Like the, the kind of deferral to women on topics of abortion, I completely understand. And I share part of it, but I, in, in my own experience, I don't know what John's experience is, but if you if if you talk to normie kind of men about their views of abortion, they are, um, I, I don't know, if surprisingly is the right word, but there's not much there. Um, John is nodding for those who can't see. I'm but a, yes, I agree. Yeah, it's basically like. Well, whatever she thinks is is the kind of view. And since I I, I do think this is the like as I said earlier, like v- possibly the most politically morally interesting topic one could come up with, I find that that suspect on the part of all men who would be inclined to think that way. And by all men, I mean the hosts of the Fifth Column podcast. <laughs> um, but but also all of my friends. I mean, it, it, it's it's remarkable how often I will like press even the smallest point on something like related to abortion with very close <laughs> friends of mine, and there's just nothing underneath it. Um, and and it's not to suggest that like. It, I don't know. It, it, it's it's fucking weird, dude. It's like they think that. Well, I, it, I, what's that? I'd I'd first of all suggest that it's probably as a result of testosterone poisoning. Far be it for me to, <laughs> accuse, and far be it for me to accuse, be the first person to accuse Michael Moynihan of being wise, but wisdom is the better part of valor. I I think that. Um, I think that they're very wise to decline comment unless they're going to have a room full of women they want to discuss it with. Um, I I think they're wise not to touch it. Mary, what does that make me? Do you really want my response? (laughs) Well, I sort of do because you're you're invoking my my own (laughs) testosterone and my wisdom. Oh, I could not comment on the level of testosterone flowing through you, Brad. Don't worry. Um, The shit is there. And I wouldn't. If you say so, um, but I, I, I do. I think that in in many ways it, it is it is a women's issue, and um, men who are uh, forward thinking who perceive that that human humans have equality, equality of opportunity, uh, equal rights, understand that the pregnancy and abortion are therefore a topic that they really don't have a lot of say in. And, and I, for one, am, have been for most of my life sick and fucking tired of men wanting to control what women do with their bodies. And this whole mask debate, it just I die with the hypocrisy of it. You can't tell me what to do with my body. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that point is fucking stupid. But like, Mary, in the in the world in which I've gotten you pregnant, 
I would hope never going to happen. Never say never, but like I would hope. I mean, <laughs> does my view of that? We can cut all of this out, but we won't. Um, you okay? If it okay, let me just set this up perfectly, Mary. So I've gotten you pregnant, okay? <laughs> this is just the thought experiment. I'm, I'm dying. Okay, yes, it's a thought experiment. I hate that. Okay. I hate that you're dying because I'm going to need you as a vessel. Um, <laughs> I'm a broken and flawed vessel. I hate to say that. Yes, you. but you can produce a child. Um, I cannot, my, actually. My child. Okay, so if I if I get you pregnant. <laughs> what, what With your super sperm, okay. Yes, because my testosterone is just like on <laughs> fleek. Does anyone say that? Um, no, nobody does. Okay, Go ahead. all right. My, no one says that, Brad. Okay, John's mom says that? Okay, so John's mom says my testosterone's on fleek, and she would know. Um, so if I get you pregnant, how? What can I say to you? I mean, because I I have provided you with half of what you need, and so many more things. So what do you what are you talking about? Women women pro- women produce. <laughs> Well, you know, women produce a finite number of eggs. They're yeah. born with the exact number of eggs they'll Maybelline. have throughout their whole lifetime, therefore making them far more valuable than your billions and gazillions of sperm that you can go fertilize 10 women in a night were you so capable. Mary, but I'm, I, I'm loyal, doubt. first of all. Second of all, <laughs> the, like, the fact that I can produce all of these little things, like, is that's a non sequitur. If I provide you the one true swimming little thing and it provide and it like interacts with your limited number of, you know, eggs and can produce a shot, what are we talking about? If if my non-working uterus would would decide that it was going to function for a period of 10 months in order for me to um, fully bring to life the egg that you fertilized. Oh yeah. I would I would still say that I, as the owner of the uterus who bears 100% of the medical liability of being pregnant including the possibility of death um it's my body I'm the one who has to carry or not carry that baby to term and carrying a baby to term even in you know a supposedly developed world where all of the best medical care is available, women still die. Women still end up with lifelong problems, chronic pain, um, malfunctioning female parts. Um, There is a lot of risk inherent in bringing a baby to term. And I think that I get to choose whether or not I want to accept that risk. Okay. If you were my partner, if you were my partner and we were in a relationship, your opinion would carry weight. But as the person who's carrying that child to term or not, the final decision is with me. Okay. Yeah. I I would, I would submit in closing that if I were having sex with you, um, (laughs) you would be involved in that decision. Birth control fails from time to time. Okay. True. I don't know what the fuck we're talking about. Sorry, this ended a long time ago. Ileana, can you give like some kind of like, (laughs) can you give like some kind of, this has been a discussion of things. (laughs) 
I, I, um, yes, it, it has. I, ah, I really want to share with everyone how the placenta is actually a parasitic oh. organ. <laughs> yes, we know. Yes. Do it. That, uh, yes. No, no, no. no. no, no. I, I regularly referred to both of my children as parasites when I was carrying them. But it's particularly the placenta that develops according to the recipe that is encoded in male DNA. So people used to think that the placenta was the site of like a negotiation between the mother's body and the fetus's body in terms of like distributing resources. But what we actually know now is that the placenta is mostly constructed according to the recipe that is present in male DNA, and its goal is to be parasitic on the female's body in order to provide the best access to resources to the fetus. I remind all of you I know, it's amazing. Uh I remind all of you broads that I have editing privileges, and I will make this as uncharitable as possible to that. Good luck. We don't care. Good luck. You're a parasite, Brad. (laughs) I know. I know, but I'm the parasite with all the power. (laughs) Ileana, can you actually... There's a book or a movie in all of this. There really is. I I still have the password to anchor. Okay, edit it yourself. Also, um, yeah, the book or the movie will be a rom-com about me trying to, like, hook up with Mary. Who's going to, what actress is going to play me? That's all I want to know. Susan Sarandon. That's, Ooh, no, yeah, she's too I old. With that. She, has, she has nice boobs. But, but she's hot. I mean, I don't. Yeah. Susan Sarandon 20 years ago. Are you happy? Ileana. You'd happy. go there. Brad's, you would go Brad's there. Never gonna you would happy. go there. Who's you? Okay, I'm sorry. Who's you? Who, me? You would go there. Yeah, I would. Okay. <laughs> We have like twenty cold opens. Who who's gonna play Victoria in our movie? Uh, Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> Yo, yes. John, I, when 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 that trial was going on, and there was like the group of like Elizabeth Holmes cosplay women, I almost texted you, being like, "Do you know where Victoria is?" <laughs> I was gonna text her the picture, but I I thought it would be offensive, so I held off. Okay, can Ileana, can you get something that I can use for editing? (laughs) Yes, I know you hate being put on the Uh, spot, but just like close this bitch out. Thank you everyone for joining us for this discussion. It is completely above board, not at all controversial, even though it has been extremely thoughtful and considered and well-informed. And that is what we wish for all of you. We love you. Gang, Bye. Gang. Bye. Bye. We end it with fuck endless wonders in the Texas legislature. Yes. Hardcore. Always. I will do that. Fuck them. Always. Fuck them. I'm going to have Brad's baby. Mary, yeah, Mary's going to have my babies. I'm going to have Brad's baby. That's, that's <laughs> the cold open. That's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> John and I are raising a cat that's becoming sentient. <laughs> 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 All right. The cat has consciousness. <laughs> All right, this is gonna this is, and opposable thumbs. This is gonna be a horror show to put together in editing terms, but it'll be beautiful. You're welcome. It'll be great. Thank you all.
episode, please rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. My stuffies like this. They're gonna be strong. <laughs>